This podcast was recorded on October 23rd, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have, as always, special guests. Um, a returning guest here, I think it's his third time on The Sherman Show, uh, Professor Robert Schiller. Welcome. Nice to be here. So, Professor Schiller, we're up in the ante from the podcast this time. We're actually recording this for our YouTube channel. And for our, our listeners out there that want to view this uh, video, you can catch us at youtube.com backslash Capital and download the video and see uh, what we're really looking like today um, and uh, what we're discussing in video format. Uh, but Professor Schiller, thanks for coming in the office today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're having you at events, so I appreciate you taking all the time today. Uh, but as you see on the table here, on, for the folks who look at the video, we have a book in front of us called Narrative Economics. Uh, Professor Schiller, what is narrative economics? I defined it in this book. So it's a, well, th there was an earlier um, discussion of narrative economics. It goes back to 1894. That used to be uh, economics in narrative form, chronologies, uh, history. Mm. But mine is a little different. For me, narrative economics is the study of narratives, not making narratives, study of popular narratives that circulate among the general public and that affect their economic decisions. We want to know how people's thinking changes through time. And people don't explain themselves. They don't explain what models they have. <laughs> but they do talk. And we, we have to p figure out from the stories they tell what's changing in their thinking. Well, I mean, when you go back to the principles of your CAPE ratio when you published um, that paper back in 1988 with John Campbell, um, I've always thought of that as a behavioral type of construct. Like, why do people pay so much for certain securities or certain segments of the market or the overall market? And further to that, why do they loathe it when it looks so cheap? Uh, the, the old adage is that uh, investing is the one place investors never look for things on sale. Um, how, does, how does that tie into a narrative? Well, I'll give you an example. People have to have some understanding of the economy, but you can't get them to express it. I'll give you an example, example from criminology. Okay. A researcher went into a prison thinking that he would learn about prisoners' outlook, philosophy, <laughs> etc., and tried asking the, one of the prisoners, can you tell me what your philosophy of life is? And he wasn't getting a very good response. Uh, prisoners don't usually talk that way. But then he found out a way to really elicit it. He asked them, see that guy over there, the other prisoner? Why is he in here? And then these people would love, they would tell the whole story of what crimes this other man had committed. And in the middle of it, you would find uh, moral judgments. These people are not amoral. <laughs> they, they have a different <laughs> view of what's appropriate and right. Uh, and they uh, they are sometimes kind-hearted <laughs> and all that. Yeah. 
that's how you have to infer what people's thinking is. It, it, people talk in terms of story. Mostly, we talk about people, gossip, uh, and especially colorful people and celebrities. But deep underneath it, there's some meaning to these stories. It, it, it's the quality of the narrative that we go after. Well, is some of that just the way that the brain processes memories, right? It's, a, it's trying to recall things within one's memory. And so is it that the narratives help us remember these stories? Um, how do they change? I remember as a child playing the telephone game, right? Oh, Where, yes, you know, right. Um, maybe you can explain how, how you think about that and how that works into narratives as well. Right. The telephone game yeah. consists of you, you, you have a, a circle of students, and one of them, you, you whisper into the ear, you are the teacher, one of the, a, a short story. And then you tell that student to whisper the same story to the next student and go all the way around to the last student. And then the last student tells what the story was. And it is totally garbled <laughs> by the end <laughs> that it comes around. Uh, so that's this. this but I, I think that the stories are not totally garbled. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's some essence remains. It isn't totally garbled. Right. And so there is something that goes viral about stories, yeah. uh, and they will be remembered a hundred years later, or even longer than that, if, if it's viral enough. Right, so maybe you could talk about some of the early um, viral stories that you discuss in your book today. Well, I have nine narratives in my book, mm -hmm. uh, perennial narratives, that th they, they haven't gone away, but they, they, they have outbreaks, like a disease, like an epidemic. That's where viral comes from, That's what from, growing right? viral yeah. means, right. yeah. So uh, one example is uh, stories about machines replacing jobs. That's very popular today, that, that narrative. I right? know. Yes. It's very popular, but it's imbued with different meanings at different times. The, the first big explosion of that epidemic was in 1811 in the United Kingdom with a group called the Luddites. Okay. And their jobs were being replaced. They were weavers, hand weavers, and they were coming in with these new uh, power looms that automatically did their job. And they got really upset, and they broke into the factory one night, and they smashed the machines. That made all the newspapers over the whole world. Everybody learned about the Luddites. <laughs> uh, but then it faded away, and th but there were other ones. There were the swing riots in the 1920s when some agricultural machine was replacing agricultural workers. It was big back then because people who lived all their, all their whole family history was all on the farm, and now they were fired from their jobs. Uh, and they could see it coming to more and more people. It seemed like the day of judgment had arrived or something like that. <laughs> and th we're going through another resurgence of this, but we have a different name for it, and it's informed by different examples. Now it's artificial intelligence, which it has something like driverless cars uh, or uh, they now have a robot that can solve Rubik's Cube <laughs> running in a – that's the latest that yeah. I can think of. It's funny. It took like 30-plus years of the, since the invention of the Rubik's Cube, maybe 40, uh, for actually to get a, a robot or a machine yeah. to be able to solve it itself, right? Yeah, that's totally yeah. useless, but it does scare people. Well, right. but now I, I don't think people are very scared at the moment because nothing bad seems to be happening on that front. What? Uh, well, we blame it on immigration or something else. Yeah. Well, I consider myself a modern-day Luddite, and I, I tend to you know, shun technology to the extent that I can. 
Um, but for some reason, I always focus on the stories. I come down to automation, AI, and just the labor replacing aspect yeah. of the of the jobs, and it seems to be at the forefront of people's minds. Especially, I mean, I, I tune into these political de- debates nowadays, and it just seems like uh, that seems to that fourth industrial revolution, as you know, they're calling it. Uh, seems to be gravitating in people's minds. And I think that was part of the discussion topics that you had when you were earlier this year at the World Economic Forum as well, right, for in Davos. The f- yeah, I think one of the recent Davos events, uh, the theme was named as the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it is, uh, it is scaring some people. But I think that it has the potential to come back with great force if unemployment goes up. That's what happened in the Great Depression. And people started to think that they'd never get their jobs back because they were being replaced by a machine. And oh. if they hadn't been replaced yet, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And then you'll be permanently out of it. So they didn't want to spend money because they were afraid. Well, and that's the self, self-fulfilling side of it. But I, I recall this as a child, you know, um, seeing you know, kind of even movies in, in the early 80s of talking about yeah. this in the automotive industry, right? That you know there was, um, I forget, the it was like a... Michael Keaton movie or something too. Gung Ho. Gung Ho, right? Where it's the fear of ultimately that the machine will take the job. But isn't it just that, you know, we have to embrace technology. It's we we continue to evolve and it's more of an idea of getting the right training, the right skills to utilize that and use it to one's advantage, right? And that's what we've seen with the human spirit over time, right? Uh, In each of these cases, going back to the Luddites, People argued that there will be another job for you, and it won't be as monotonous as weaving all day long. <laughs> and so, it, uh, so far, that's turned out to be right. Well, but we get to sit around. These are our jobs to sit around and tell these narratives that people have been creating. Well, maybe we'll evolve into a society that is much more relaxed and uh, much more uh, nurturing of uh, children and elderly and handicapped. Yeah. We'll sit around and tell stories all the time, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, it's always fun to sit around and tell stories, right? I mean, I, I think that's that's part of the human condition. And right? that's why things move. That's why ideas are carried. They're like donkeys that carry the ideas. Yeah. So you you were talking about the garbling, and I brought it up for the telephone game. It reminds me of the the story of like information theory, right? When we're talking about Bell Labs and what signal do you need to to actually transmit information? What's the redundancy behind it? And you know what happens in these narratives as as you think about it to really impacting society, right? So you just mentioned about people being fearful their job's going to go away, so they curtail spending. Um, how much of these are just are self fulfilling, and is it really that we have business and economic cycles, or is it just that we as human beings create them simply due to let's say our fear or our greed? Well, part of what happens in the economy is a result of technology and progress. When they invented the railroad, uh, we had a big project ahead of us, building all those railroads. Mm-hmm. They, they were expensive. Uh, it was a big project. Those things drive business cycles as well. But I think that a, a, a big part of business cycles is the self-fulfilling prophecy type. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people believe that also. That is a narrative. So back in 1933, in the height of the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That was a story of the Great Depression uh, that had it depending on, uh, on our confidence or, or stories that convey confidence or lack thereof. 
So let's take that example. And, you know, uh, we're at year 10 plus of the expansion, whether or not we call it a bull market or not. But at least from the bottom of the economic expansion or the, the contraction we had back in 08 and early 09. Um, and so people keep asking, recession probability. I, I, I've told people, if we're going to have a recession right now, it feels like it's the most well-telegraphed recession known to oh, man, yeah. right? And so is some of the technology feeding this? Um, is it that we can prevent it because we know so much about it? Or is it just that we're doomed to repeat ourselves uh, through these perennial type of narratives that, yeah. that we continue to do? Well, I, doom is a rather strong word. Uh, yeah. Recessions usually aren't that bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they do th throw a monkey wrench in some work. Uh, and I think they are uh, uh, somewhat manageable. We're doing better than we used to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's not just because of uh, interest rate setting policy. It's also because of the understanding that people have in, in government ab about the na importance of narrative. So, for example, when the Northern Rock uh, Bank uh, mm -hmm. experienced a run in the U.S. In 07, yeah. 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 Uh, then the, the British government bailed out the depositors. Yep. Ex post, they just raised the uh, insurance uh, limit. Mm -hmm. That was because they knew that if what was starting to move was a narrative that no bank is safe, and it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. It very much is. That's not even questioned. Especially in a reserve system, right? Yeah, uh, or fractional yeah, reserve system. Fractional yeah. reserve yeah. system. Yeah. So uh, when someone says to you, you better get right over to the Eagle Bank because they're going under, uh, you will go there, <laughs> and then you'll see a whole crowd of people <laughs> trying to get into the bank, right. and you'll panic. <laughs> That's what they called it, panic. Yeah. But it, those things didn't really happen very uh, prominently before the 19th century. So something developed in our thinking at that time. So uh, I was at an event you were speaking at a couple years ago where you'd just given this speech uh, uh, about narrative economics. And um, I, I believe you said, uh, you may not use the phrase, but my recollection, see here I go with my own narrative, uh, was that you, know, you talking about narratives and applying to the field of economics was almost heresy, right? The idea that it's not, you know, it's not this science, this very algorithmic thing that we can write down uh, was kind of in the face of the belief of all the economists. And so how, one, is was that a good recollection? Secondly, how, how do you think it's been being embraced as you've done more and more research and been, been talking about it further? Well, I started this book uh, a couple of years ago when I gave my presidential address to the American Economic Association. And I was afraid they might boo me <laughs> because <laughs> I was a little critical of their omission of narratives from their analysis. But they applauded, Good. and they've always been nice about it. I don't know what they're saying behind my back. <laughs> but at least to your <laughs> some face, of them, yeah. Some <laughs> of them don't like it, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, what they don't like about it is that it looks unscientific. All these silly stories people are telling, mm -hmm. we're not going to research that. Yeah. They, they think you have to keep a certain level of dignity to the profession. But the problem is, this is what's really happening, I think. Mm -hmm. And we have to face, it's, it's a little bit slippery and hard to measure narratives. More than a little, it's quite slippery. But I think we have improved technology in terms of digitized text and computer search that we can actually do better. And I think that uh, the future will uh, move ahead with narrative economics because young researchers want to do something new and different. And th this, this is already happening. There's people looking at narratives. 
Yeah, just you're talking about the ability to quantify the data, and as you mentioned, the advances in technology. It's you know, we can go on Google nowadays and you know, Google Trends, uh, right. Google Books slash was it Engrams yeah, uh, right. to, to search the books. I mean, versus uh, just using was a ProQuest before back in the day. It seems like it's well, accessible before that, for it most was people. Microfilm. You have to go to the library and take out these reels of <laughs> thing and put them on a, a film reader. And that's the job you give to the interns because it's so <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so you're not there, and you don't experience. <laughs> what I love to do now is go back and read old newspapers, like a hundred years ago. Yeah, and just sort of get involved. Read the same. Read every day for the same uh, month and day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for about a hundred years ago. What do you learn from that? What What is oh, it? What, 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 what kind of insight? The thing is, they're you? remarkably similar to people today. In, uh, you know, movies tend to emphasize the difference, but when you read some of them, it sounds. You know, I feel like telling my wife, you know, I just heard in the news this morning something you wrote. <laughs> but wait a minute, that was 100 years ago this morning. <laughs> As the research progresses, I mean, how do you see this advancing in terms of your work in it and it, it expanding beyond that? And then ultimately what the applications would be for, for narrative so economics? Well, one, th one thing is that uh, economics has gotten rather uh, remiss in studying history mm. uh, and uh, they don't, uh, or, or other social sciences. It's coming around, not, uh, not so much economic history. That's not a big area now, but it should be because we ultimately your intuitions about what can happen in the future are shaped by actually reading what happened. Uh, it doesn't necessarily accord with anybody's n nice theory. The world is complicated, and uh, people have strange motivations that surprise you. They want to start wars. Why would anybody start a war? Yeah, that doesn't really fit into the supposition of, um, of, of rationality to start with, right? Yeah, Maybe it does for the, the war. There is some yeah. rationality. Yeah. It's yeah. actually an important idea to, to model the rational behavior of people as an mm -hmm. exercise. Mm -hmm. If everyone was rational, what would the economy look like? But that's not the, the finished job. You have to start thinking about what it was uh, really going on in people's minds. And it's not constant through time. So what motivated you to really start thinking about this? Like, what, what made you seek this out? And were you just uh, branching off into other fields? Um, yeah. And you were noticing that the narratives were prevalent and accepted. Uh, how did you stumble across this? Or, or what really got you to say, we need to really discuss this in a, form, uh, in, in a more formalized uh, fashion? Well, I uh, have been at this for a long time. It starts out when I was a teenager. <laughs> and I was in college at University of Michigan. And I took a history course that talked about economics. And I thought, you know, these people have something really important, these historians, to say. So it's been on my mind ever since. When I became president of the AEA, American Economic Association, I thought, you know, I went and read some other presidential addresses. A lot of them actually criticized the profession. Mm. It, uh, I don't know what, something that comes over you, <laughs> 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 when, you when you have this title. Yeah. And you've so achieved the pinnacle of, of <laughs> there, right. and so, so you need to tell I everybody <laughs> how bad it is. Huh? But it's really, actually, I am a big admirer of what goes on. Yeah. And actually, the profession uh, of economics and finance are both changing. They're becoming more down-to-earth, I think, than they were uh, uh, 50 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I said when we started off, like I think of it as a behavioral aspect, and I think the narrative side is, has resonated with me as well because – you know, what you're trying to do is either justify one's behavior or why that behavior isn't appropriate. And you'd mentioned talking about interest rate policy. Well, uh, I, I think that, you know, when I look at Chairman Powell and 
his nervousness, his eight times a year he has to get up there and give that speech after the FOMC meetings. I, I think a lot of it is him trying to exude confidence, you know, that right. we have a good plan. And again, not to be critical of Mr. Powell, but the idea is to tell people it's okay. We're watching. We're trying to do the right things. Whether or not you agree with them um, is a lot of it, especially when you get to this high level, is trying to you know be a leader and convince people and coerce them that maybe maybe things could be bad, but we'll get through it. Right? This reminds me, uh, uh, Roy Hawtrey wrote a book a hundred years ago called The Art of Central Banking, mm. saying it is an art, not a <laughs> science. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that uh, another thing that comes from my book is that maybe it's worthwhile to study the humanities, mm -hmm. history, literature, art, mm. yeah. music, because they're all part of human uh, nature. And uh, understanding that ultimately aids in your quantitative work yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that, and you talked about history of economics. Um, for your PhD students, do they have to study? Is there a course, history of economics or economic well, there's history? Two, there's, there's, there's economic yeah. history, mm -hmm. and there's history of economic thought. Okay. And but they're not uh, typically required, and it's not, uh, it's not something that is prominent. Okay. Because I remembered as an undergraduate, I had to take the history of mathematics, you know, oh, and, and learning about oh. that. And I, th I think it is useful to see how things happen. But I do think I find it curious that you say say in the humanities, because there are a lot of, I think, correlations there, because, or at least just strong relationships, because you talk cyclicality. I mean, music is a lot of cyclicality, right? Arts tend to be trend-following, right? There's, you have yeah. a trend, and there's a, a new type of uh, style that, that becomes prevalent. And so, uh, I mean, how, how does this evolve as we think about it? Or are we just saying that, really, this is really just be a student of history? Go back and learn how people uh, have behaved. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. Well, you can do that. It, yeah. That is a major, but yeah. it's not for everyone. Sure. But, but I think that we do have to try to be Renaissance men and women and learn about other fields because you can go off on a – your sense of perspective about what's real and important can, can be off if you don't study widely. Yeah. Well, what do you think are the most um, – you, you mentioned perennial narratives. As you went back and you've looked at the last couple hundred years, which, which ones do you think are the most prevalent that just keep uh, rising time and time again? Well, the confidence narrative, which I list first, mm -hmm. is something that wasn't always with it. Th there was a confidence narrative about armies who would sometimes lose confidence and retreat and lose the battle because they lost confidence. But they didn't talk so much about the economy. Uh, a lot of this came in, in na after 1929. I before 1929, newspapers didn't quote very often uh, stock price indices. Now it's right on the front page and in the TV news show that's in a banner that's moving all, all the time. Right. So uh, we, uh, well, the stock market as some sort of a gauge of, of confidence. Uh, before, before the early 19th century, there wasn't much talk about panics or bank runs. So there must have been bank runs in the 18th century, but not really, not really, because people didn't talk about that. Uh, so what is a bank run? That's when someone tells you that it's about to uh, collapse and you better get there. Uh, but you won't be, if you've never heard of a bank run, <laughs> if you've never heard the story, you won't react. Right. So, so, and then the 1929 story was a story that people uh, really reacted to. Uh, but I think that there were before that, there were narratives 
already in place, notably the technological unemployment narrative. Mm -hmm. They didn't say artificial intelligence at all, right. but they thought machines were replacing jobs. And that started in the 1920s. And uh, it led to when the crash came in October of 1929, immediately people jumped on that story. I don't know if it was a logical consequence, but they thought this was a sign that something's coming. Uh, something with technology that's bad for our jobs is coming. And that's yeah. another narrative that really drove the Great Depression. Well, I think one thing I learned reading the book and, again, seeing a couple of your presentations over the last couple of years is that um, the idea of classifying these events. And during the time, during the Great Depression, no one called it the Great Depression, right? Yeah. And that we assigned these Not names. Not no one, but well, almost no sorry, one. Sorry, sorry, no one. I'm being too too specific there, yeah. You can Very search rarely. for them and yeah. find yeah, them. Yeah, there were some there, yeah. And it's like irrational exuberance. The, the, it hits right. the lexicon and people use it. So um, when you think about this, why do we have this need as human beings to ascribe this, you know, a lot of times they're alliterative, you know, or they, they have oh, some cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Why is it? Is it that we're trying to make these less painful? Or is it just that the, the phraseology is what really resonates with this? Yeah, th this is where we bring in the humanities and the, uh, the course you took in comparative literature. <laughs> <laughs> Why do some novels succeed and others uh, just uh, never get off the ground? It, that is difficult. Th there are people who try to uh, analyze with computers what now? So they feed in them uh, to a computer, uh, uh, you know, the texts of millions of novels, and then uh, ask it to with machine learning to figure out which ones were uh, bestsellers. Mm. Uh, but machines have trouble doing that still, and it's partly because they don't have any human sense uh, of what people are thinking about at that time and what. Uh, resonates what you have to take account what resonates with them in recent past and how it could be cleverly transformed into a new variant that's intriguing i don't know what it is no, they, they're get, they're closer than anybody else at the university <laughs> yeah. but I, yeah. I think they haven't resolved it fully either yeah no it's it's really interesting because it just it shares the resemblance across like every field of study and so i i guess uh, as we talk about investing uh, what would you be your advice to people when thinking about narratives? Is it to be cautious on them? Is it to try to understand this? Is it is it something that's redundant from points in the past, or is it to just you know understand that as humans we're always going to have fads, and right. you know that that's the, that's just the nature of markets. Well, I think that the answer is somewhat subtle, and uh, think of yourself as a business person who is on TV. And uh, you are the market is falling rapidly, or something like that. What is your obligation? Uh, sh maybe you should try to be optimistic. I, I think you should, right? I mean, if if I yeah. mean maybe so, but maybe you should be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> well, that's not good TV though, typically. <laughs> but if, yeah, that's the moral dilemma. Yeah, you it's know, the moral being, dilemma, being right? honest may be kind of stick in the mud and uh, uh, boring. Uh, but then there's a the moral dimension. That right. Uh, I don't think there are easy answers to these questions. Yeah. It, but uh, the best thing I can say is you have to study hard. And, and, and for your own investing decision, you might want to delegate that yeah. uh, and use advice. Well, we notice this. We notice this when you think about each, let's say, calendar year. I mean, there's, they tend to be extremely faddish, right? I mean, um, this year has been the, um, 
you know, I would kind of say it's been the year of the uh, pseudo meat or the plant-based type of stuff, like fake meat, I think people have been calling it. Oh, yeah. Last year was marijuana. The year before, it was, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies. There yeah. tends to be this one theme that people yeah. would grab on. It's going to be life-changing. Cool. These things, yeah. uh, cryptocurrency, that's really cool. It seems cool. And I still don't understand so is, it. Yeah. So is marijuana. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's what all the kids said in high school. They were cool because they did it, right, too. Uh, but, you know, the plant-based food seems cool, seems yeah. ec uh, ecological, right? And so it, it's all of these things that kind of feed into the psychosis of what's going on in, in just society, right? No, it's not not as if there aren't other people shorting these. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. It doesn't mean you'll make money or anything, but I'm saying they, they just seem to, to really catch on. And um, I think that's really what I got from reading the book was that, uh, you know, you see that they, these are just time and time again. The the players are slightly different. It, it could be the cryptocurrency because of the fear of the banks, and it's you know going to be 08 over again, or it's the you know as you said the Northern Rock situation. Um, yeah. But they all kind of resonate. They they have some underlying premise. I think that's what I really got out of out of reading this. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got something out of yeah, it. And yeah, I'm hopeful <laughs> that. Uh, yeah. But I, it, it's not just my book. I think this is coming. Yeah. Just as the data revolution, and we have that with digitized text and search engines that are getting better and better. Yeah. Data revolutions encourage intellectual revolutions. Right, and I think what Sam was mentioning earlier, you know, just what you can do with the search engines, right, where, you know, it, just the compiling this data, the trends, um, and trying to catch those societal trends. Um, you know, somehow in my email, um, someone signed me up for this thing called Word of the Day. And I was like, what is this stupid thing? <laughs> and then I, after a while, you get you deleted a lot. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to click it. Yeah. And then now I'm kind of addicted to it. It gives you an, un an unusual definition. It, it, some, sometimes they're unusual. Some of them, it's like, oh, I should have known that. But I mean, words that a lot of people don't. Don't, know don't probably meaning. know the meaning. You sort of got it yeah. wrong. Yeah. yeah, or you look at it and it's like, well, that's not what I thought that word really was. Yeah. But what I noticed within it, which is what I was going towards, is that it also shows the trend usage yeah. you know, of the word. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing to see some of these that they were very popular in the 17 or 1800s fall off, and then they come back, they have a resurgence. And so, yeah. I, um, again, I don't know where this came from. Someone signed me up for it. Uh, I get a lot of spam and things, but... Yeah. Um, that's something that <laughs> yeah, I found do. here because it's like it's the same thing with, you know, vocabulary, right? Words come into favor. They change meanings over time. And so I think yeah. it's very similar to what and we're discussing. They also have multiple meanings. Yeah. What a complicated mess our language is. It really <laughs> is. But that's also because we borrow from so many as well, too, right? It's yeah. also, I mean, the trans transmission mechanism that you're talking about today as well. Everything that we've talked about more recently is digital. It's on the interweb. So it makes the future tracking and quantifying of these changes in the narrative, changes in the trends yeah. that much easier to, to keep yeah. up with versus going back to digitized reprints, copies of books yeah. or newspapers going back to 1800s. Well, I think you've always tried to do this, right, Professor, if I recall. Um, you were, you've always been very big on surveys, yeah, right? right? Isn't survey trying to determine yeah. the pulse and the narrative? Or? Yeah, uh, I've been doing surveys for 30 years. The, uh, what I used to think is that the ideal thing is to write a questionnaire and never change it. Give the whole questionnaire again and again and again over the Control years. Control the sample, right? And then yeah. Because questions depend on context. Mm -hmm. And if someone takes one question from a survey and doesn't take account of what was asked just before, which reminded people of things, mm -hmm. they'll get a different answer. So I wanted to have mm -hmm. a clean, perfect question. But the problem with that, I discovered, 
is the meaning of words changes. New, uh, new words come up that I didn't think of back then mm -hmm. that I could ask about. So uh, it, it's, it's not so easy. And I think that uh, the alternative is the ex other extreme where you just listen to people, but as you say, on digitized uh, texts. Uh, but I think there's, there are more in-depth uh, uh, combinations of these things that will, be, will eventually learn better how to understand what people are thinking yeah. in history. Well, I got to say, every time we have a conversation, you're always thinking of something different and pushing <laughs> us. And I, I'm always glad to see that, too, that you're not just stuck in one thing. You're always trying to contribute. And uh, that's one thing we really appreciate you uh, spending time with us and kind of sharing your ideas, because I know I always learn from it. And so it's great to have you here today. But before we leave, you know that Sam has a game he likes to play before we leave. Oh, I haven't. Yeah, you played this on me, and I forgot all about it. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll have Sam remind I, you and I our listeners have the rules. I should prepared for this. Yeah, oh, there's no preparation for this. <laughs> no context given. So this favorite part of, this, of the show is called Sherman Says. And if you, as you don't recall, I'll go over the rules again. What I'll do is I'll provide a prompt to which you'll give a top-of-mind response. <laughs> okay. Just to remind you, one of the ones in the last series that we gave you was Coco back in Zurich uh, <laughs> earlier this year, yeah. to which yeah. you had the reply about um, you're not sure why you're giving it to it by the, uh, the folks over at Barclays all the time, <laughs> but uh, it prompted a nice little response from you. So we'll but try that to keep that narrative. Oh, that narrative. Professor I Schiller loves uh, Coco. Everyone else was having coffee, and I asked for Coco. And somehow that became a, my defining trait. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> how that happened. That's it. So. All right, let's go what then. What we'll do Mr. is uh, start out with Mr. Sherman with yield curve targeting. Horrible idea. Mr. Professor Schiller, actually, uh, deflation. Uh, tragic idea. Hmm. <laughs> You had to up, one up me with your word of the day, tragic. <laughs> or it has to be one word. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no, no. Nope. I would say, remember my word of the day story we were just discussing, as I was saying. Okay. Christine Lagarde. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Mario Draghi. Oh, an old friend of mine yeah. from, from 30 years ago. I haven't kept in touch. Oh, you need to. But I have you to should. say something about <laughs> He's been busy. No, but no, you don't have to say anything bad <laughs> about him, you know? <laughs> Going back to Mr. Sherman with protectionism. Trending. Modern monetary theory. <laughs> oh. uh, old stuff uh, in new, old stuff in new garb. Mm. It almost sounds like uh, QE4. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the recent 60 yeah. billion yeah. a month. Right. Uh, global supply chains. Redefining. Universal basic income. The first thing that creeps into my mind is inevitable, but I don't know if I want to say that. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Thomas Paine advocated that in 1795, I think. It's been around. It's been around. Yeah. It's in a, one of those universal uh, perennial narratives hmm. that uh, we may have to do it someday. Yeah. Question is, uh, we, some would even question if we've already been doing it, you know, to some extent. So, yeah. um, final round is Russian trolls. Perennial, <laughs> <laughs> at least so I'm told. <laughs> and the final one for Professor Schiller is sushi. 
some sushi. I'd like some right now. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, uh. Well, L.A., we, we have a fair amount of sushi. There's oh. some great restaurants. Yeah, so hopefully right. we can try to score you some of that in between uh, this and the next event. So, again, Professor Schiller, many thanks for joining us today, uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Congratulations on the publishing of your latest uh, book out there. It's Narrative Economics. You can buy that on Amazon, right? Or um, if you can find a, a retailer that still has a brick-and-mortar store in your local uh, city, please pick it up there as well. Um, you can follow us on at Sherman Show Pod on the Twitter. Uh, we have uh, the YouTube account, as we mentioned, youtube.com backslash double line capital. And as always, you can catch us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, uh, Stitcher now, Spotify, some wow. other things I've never heard of. Our listeners keep saying these are the places to go. So um, there's more and more distribution out there for the podcast. That's so contagion. It is contagion. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, thanks again for listening. Tune in uh, in a couple weeks as we'll have a new episode out for you then. Again, thanks again, Professor. My pleasure. Bye. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.